Hello, friends, and welcome to the show. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? I gotta tell you, this one was really exciting for us to do. Today, Perry and I sat down with Michael Mandavi. Listen, when you're talking about Napa Valley winemaking or California winemaking, the United States as a whole, you have to mention the Mandavi name. These guys are pioneers to luxury winemaking, and they were doing it at a time when no one else was. This is Prohibition era winemaking. These guys set a pace to what we know as California winemaking today. It was an honor to speak to him today, and he couldn't have been a nice enough guy. We also talked a lot about our Zoom tasting that he's going to be hosting next week. That's Friday, December 11th, 6.30. We still have some spots available for that. You can go to our website, edsfinewines.com, under the Zoom tasting with Michael Mandavi. All the information is there. You can purchase it. If you're going to do it and you need it shipped, I'd do it now because that is coming up rather quickly. We had a great conversation, and we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Cheers. Cheers, brother. How you doing? Cheers, Anthony. How are you? Very good. Michael, how you doing, buddy? I am doing great. It's just a wonderful day here in Napa Valley. Beautiful. Well, it's a uh, absolute pleasure to uh, have you on. It's likewise my pleasure to be on, and I hope that you and your family and all of your associates and customers are healthy and surviving as well as possible during this crazy pandemic. It's certainly a uh, it's certainly an interesting year, but for the most part, we've uh, everyone here has been safe. We've been very fortunate, to say the least. How is it in Napa Valley? It's the same. We uh, we are are in purple right now, so things are pretty much shut down. But the the the, the locals have been safe. When things opened up a bit, there was just a real rush of tourism. And most of the locals wouldn't even go out to uh, restaurants for lunch or dinner outside because they were so full and the sidewalks were full. So we would just wait for midweek to go out and kind of camp in place when there was a larger population. Well, that's that's very interesting. I noticed that uh, California is going through its own unique set of circumstances with the restrictions that are put in place and things shutting down. I mean, is that taking a toll on any of your uh, tasting rooms or tourism, or how is that affecting you? It, it's directly impacting every tasting room. There are no longer inside tastings allowed. There were for about three or four weeks, and then it was taken away. Also, it's even worse for the, many of the local restaurants uh, as we go into winter and it's getting cold, uh, they have to have outside dining only. And I know a number of the more popular restaurants have spent, are spending thousands and thousands of dollars on uh, large tent coverings outside for their patios so that they can have some net revenue rather than just essentially shut down and not have a good area outside that's safe for their customers. It's uh, it's heartbreaking to say the least, and it's uh, you know, the economy. You you've got to hope that you know the best, but 
I guess we'll see what the fallout of this all turns out to be. I mean, our our hearts are with California. It seems to be a very um, a unique set of circumstances. I guess that's the best way to kind of describe it. We we've been talking. It is, and it's really interesting because Northern California is quite different from Southern California. Southern California is having a far more difficult go of it. I think it has to do with the density of the population, but. Um, uh, Northern California, the, the, the restaurants, some of the small businesses, and the tasting rooms are suffering, but the people are generally in pretty good shape, pretty good mindset, and as you experience also, if we can see the sunshine, it sure helps the state of mind. We were, um, you know, we've been talking to a lot of people in Napa and uh, just how they were affected by the fires. I mean, you know, it was... You know, did they have loss of vineyard? Did they have loss of property? Did you guys have um, much of a problem with that? I mean, and because you have so much. Yeah, the sad news, sad news is the answer was yes to both of those questions. We lost the entire crop, our hillside vineyard up east of St. Helena at 1,400 feet was, you know, if we made Cabernet, it'd be like Cabernet barbecue sauce. <laughs> wow. And so we... We elected, after doing a number of small bucket fermentations and lab analysis, we opted to not put the brand image at risk and to forego the entire 2020 harvest for our M, Onimo, and Emblem wines. Wow. We're fortunate with with Oberon uh, that we're going to be tasting next week that the vineyards are from a different area in the valley floor and were not impacted by the smoke. We also, when the fire came around about a week later and and rose its ugly head, it it wiped out and burnt 23 of our 110 acres. And those vines all now have to be torn out and replanted. So we got spanked pretty well by Mother Nature. Well, with the upside is i mean i feel like we're going to be very lucky because we're going to have you in to do a a zoom tasting for our customers next week and um you're going to be going through four of the wines the animo the emblem the isabel chardonnay and the oberon so i didn't know if you want to talk a little bit maybe about those and give us some ideas of you know we're, we're listen we've already gone through probably 30 cases of animo 11 which is yeah. drinking crazy good right now. Yeah, it's absolutely yummy. And um, uh, my son Rob, five years ago, really took over the wine, the grape growing and winemaking of that. He is the key winemaker. I am a uh, kind of assistant or consultant. And he has a young woman by the name of Sabrina Mazzola, who is from Argentina and one of the star winemakers from Argentina who's worked with us for five years. And we've got a great team and each year, the wine that the Am and Animo are just like going up a staircase on an escalator. They're just much nicer style and character. And it's really exciting for me because as the teacher, when you see the student surpass you, you know you've done a good job. <laughs> well, I do want to kind of pause you there, Michael, and I kind of want to talk 
in the industry that we are in and we're so engulfed in it and we're, you know, so immersed in the wine industry as a whole, we kind of know what the Mandavi name means. But for some of our listeners who, uh, you know, maybe are just getting into wine, can you kind of describe, I mean, where, how this all started for you? I mean, when you talk about Napa Valley, when you talk about California or, or winemaking from the United States, you can't talk about it without bringing up the Mandavi name. Uh, I think what you guys are doing well, is incredible, and I'd, I'd like to kind of dive into where that came from. Well, thank you. It, it really, it came, I think, starting with my grandmother and grandfather, who were immigrants through Ellis Island, moved to Minnesota. Uh, because of Prohibition, the store owner and restaurant owner that my grandfather was working for sent him to California to buy grapes during Prohibition because you could make 200 gallons of wine per household. With repeal of Prohibition, my grandfather got into the um, winemaking business as well, and in 1943, the family purchased the Charles Krug Winery, which was the historic winery in Napa Valley at that time, and just beautiful. My grandfather, father, and uncle really set the tone of wanting to compete with the great wines of the world. They felt we had the soil, the climate, the grape varieties in Napa Valley. We had the knowledge and the passion to do that. But I think the unsung heroine of the Mandavi family is my grandmother. She is the one that essentially said, make wine that tastes good. Hmm. I'll give you an example. I had her taste a barrel sample of the 1969 Cabernet Sauvignon Reserve that I had made at Robert Mondavi. And this was 1971, and I had her taste it, and she looked at me, and she said, Mikey, I want you to make wine that tastes good. And I said, what do you mean? I was disappointed. I expected her to describe Cabernet Sauvignon, and she didn't. What she said was, you can tell a wine tastes good when you serve it to family and friends at a meal and they want a second or third glass. Hmm. The wine invites you back into the glass. If your wine doesn't do that, it doesn't taste good. And it was that mindset that my grandmother had with my father, my uncle, myself, my cousins, that I think was part of the underlying values that allowed us to be successful. That gives me, just hearing that kind of give, makes the hair on the back of my neck raise up because that's, I mean, that's beautiful and that's exactly what wine should be, right? That's something that you want to, at least in our family, we, we sit down, we around a table, we open a bottle of wine and, and the thing is you want to you wanna have more, you want to indulge, you want to have conversation and camaraderie and that's kind of what that is. Uh, so that's a beautiful thing, but I also, I mean, I don't want to gloss over the fact that what you guys did, you're talking about prohibition era. This is, this is time oh, where, yeah. where really making wine in, in California or Napa Valley, that's kind of a, a crazy thing to even think about, right? It was because Napa Valley was the market basket of fruits, vegetables, and um, prunes, almonds, walnuts for the entire Northern California, San Francisco Bay area. In 1968, 
wine was the number six agricultural crop in Napa. Prunes, cattle, sheep, all, you know, many other agricultural crops were more important back in the 60s and, and before. So it's only been in the last 35 to 45 years where wine has taken center stage in Napa Valley. You know, another interesting thing that uh, I think the women uh, who don't get the proper credit in the wine industry, uh, we would always, my father, my uncle, uh, my brother and I, the most important thing at the table was the wine. Well, my wife taught me years ago, wine's the third most important thing at the table. The most important thing at the table are the people, the conversation, and the friendship. The second most important thing at the table is the food, and wine is there to enhance the enjoyment of the friendship, conversation, and the food. And so we've really kind of taken that focus, and for example, the Isabel um, Chardonnay uh, that we'll have next week is 100% Chardonnay, and it is just a beautiful Napa Chardonnay, not overly oaked. It's more of a Burgundian style because that's what invites you to have another sip. It complements the food and excites the taste buds. So the food tastes better and so does the wine. Yeah, I was blown away by that wine. I, I think that wine is so great. And uh, I remember when uh, Stephen uh, Squibbs brought it into us to taste and said, hey, you know, try this. You can't. This is going to be a hard one for you guys to get because, you know, it's been locked down for some people. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, because the restaurants have been a little hurting, you know, we're getting some allocations that we would never normally get. But, yeah, my God, that it's, it, I call I call that Chardonnay a dangerous Chardonnay because all of a sudden your glass is empty and then it's refilled. And then your glass is empty and then it's refilled. <laughs> the good news about the pandemic, we don't have to worry about designated drivers because we're not driving anywhere. <laughs> and I, the, the bottle is a beautiful bottle, too. So as far as, you know, when I thought about it, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be a good gifting bottle, too, for the holidays. But uh, I was really blown away by the wine and the Merlot, the uh, Oberon Merlot. I mean, you know, I can't wait for the tasting on Friday so people can taste through this Merlot and go, why have I been passing Merlots by? Um, many Merlots for years were just a junior Cabernet. And some, some of the producers, it was hard to tell the Cabernet from the Merlot. And we've always tried to have Merlot stand on its own two feet and stand up and say, I'm Merlot and I'm proud of it. And we want to make sure that Merlot is a, an individual style, not a weak or soft Cabernet. And I find that with the lighter foods that I've been eating lately, I actually drink more Merlot now than Cabernet Sauvignon. I love that you phrase it that way, because I'm, uh, myself, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Merlot, and I love uh, old world Merlot. I like Merlot that stands on its own, but I find myself, I'm guilty of it, you know, getting people to drink Merlot. I find myself introducing them through, this is a cab drinker's Merlot. And I, I, even when it comes out of my mouth, I hate that I'm saying it, but trying to get someone to drink Merlot is, yeah. is twisting their arm. 
but I like the approach that you take to that. It's Merlot should stand on its own, and it's beautiful. And if it wasn't for a very unfortunate movie, people would be drinking more Merlot, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It's In fact, one, we've done a little unique thing with our Merlot from Oberon. It has just under 11% Syrah and 1.5% Zinfandel blended with the Merlot. And we like that rounder feel that you got from the Syrah and just a little more in the aromatic, the fruitiness, it complemented the Merlot. Um, it was really interesting when uh, Tony Coltrane, our winemaker, and my son were doing different blending. They said, you know, well, let's try this. This was about five years ago. And it really, it, it added zip and excitement to the Merlot. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to taste... I believe that uh, we bought a bunch of 2010 emblem. I think, did you have your hand in that? Oh yeah, no, actually my son and daughter, are, are, emblem is their brand. Uh, a fun story on that is when we, we were gonna come out with emblem for the first vintage, we wanted my daughter, Dina, son, Rob, and I to, the three of us agreed on the final blend. Well, they kept agreeing on the blend, and I was the odd man out. And I finally <laughs> just said, you know what? I'm not allowing them to make emblem in the style for their generation. And what Rob did on that, again, is it's a 90% Cabernet on the emblem 2016 with 5% Petit Verdot and 5% Petit Syrah. And it's really interesting how just a little bit of some of these other varieties just add excitement to the wine itself. Chardonnay is the only variety that I've found you cannot improve with other varieties. Hmm. It just has to be done in the winery or through the growing of the grape. There's nothing else you can do. You can't blend that in. Absolutely. In fact, we, we, look at ourselves as wine growers, not as wine makers, because you develop the flavor, the body, the aromatics in the fruit. And the minute you pick those grapes, you've got 100% of what you're going to end up with. And if you do a really good job, you can retain that. I think that's beautiful. I think that uh, the Chardonnay is a, an absolutely gorgeous wine. Uh, I, I like that it's done in more of a Burgundian style. I've always said that uh, Chardonnay to me is, is one of the most versatile grapes. And uh, coming from the restaurant world, one of my favorite things to hear was I don't like Chardonnay because there's so that grape just does so many different things from that big oaky buttery style that people seem to gravitate towards you know the american palate these days uh to more of like the chablis style i mean it's just such an in incredibly yeah. versatile grape um that people who like white wine if you say you don't like it i, I i've got a wine for you um but i do want to amen you're right <laughs> i, I want to talk about uh that wine a little bit uh, there seems to be a story behind it right what's the uh, uh how was it named what's the story I'm sorry, which one again? The Chardonnay. Oh, the Chardonnay is from Napa. Uh, we uh, determine when to harvest the grapes 
by tasting the grapes. We don't do the traditional sugar, acid, pH, chemical analysis. And again, that's something I learned from my grandmother years ago, is that if the grape tastes good, the wine can taste good. Mm -hmm. You don't have flavor when you analyze for sugar, acid, and pH. And so you want the right balance of sugar and acid, but it's the flavor. So we go out every morning uh, and taste the, the grapes that will potentially be harvested in the next couple of days, and we determine which blocks or uh, should it wait another couple of days, and literally one or two different days will make a difference in the style and character of that wine. So step one, taste the grape, determine when to harvest. You we take the grapes uncrushed directly into a press, a bladder press, and we press the grapes, skins, seeds, and all together. But we, we just start the press a little bit and then let skin, seeds, and juice to remain in contact for a couple hours so we can extract a little more flavor from the skins and then complete the pressing cycle. We allow the freshly pressed juice to sit in a stainless vertical tank overnight and the solids will precipitate out to the bottom and we then um, rack, uh, will siphon from the racking valve, a valve that's about 14 inches above the bottom of the tank, into individual barrels and the wine is then fermented in individual barrels of a combination of uh, American oak and French oak, and most of it is once or twice used because we don't want too much of that oak character. We want a kiss of oak, but not a wet kiss of oak. <laughs> Before uh, we came on, you were saying that you guys were running a little short on rain uh, right now in California, and um, can you explain to everybody how that's, I mean, you know, because everything is done, right? Harvest is over. Can you explain maybe a little bit to everybody, if you don't get rain, how that can affect the 21 vintage? Yeah, well, the harvest is over. Uh, as the cold weather comes in and the uh, weather gets below 32 degrees, it drives the grapevines to go dormant, just like a rose bush will go dormant and drop its leaves. Once the vines are dormant, we go into the vineyard and we prune um, probably 90% of the growth that was there the last year. And that will, how we prune determines what the crop level and quality could be for the following year. If you are not severe enough in the pruning, you're going to have too many grapes and you will not have enough flavor in those grapes. But the winter and generally in California and in Napa, we get a good amount of rain in uh, end of November, December. We get uh, fair rain in January, February, and then very little rain the balance of the year. So of the 32 inches of rainfall we get as an average, most of it will happen in the end of November, December. And to date, we've had 10% of normal. So we're not wow. getting the rain to load up the aquifer and raise the water tables. 
grapevines have deep roots, but if the water is below the roots, that's a problem. So we're hoping for rainfall. Also with the fires, we need light rainfall, which we got two weeks ago. We got about an inch of rain. It didn't cause erosion problems, but it allowed germination of seeds to start to heal that area that was ravaged by these wildfires. We now need rain, and there's no rain forecast for the next 12 to 14 days. Mm. So it's beautiful for humans right now, but we in agriculture are saying we want to do a rain dance, and we want to bring the rains. We need it desperately. <laughs> yeah, so... We are, are, again, you know, sending out good thoughts, good prayers, you know, towards you guys, hoping that that, you know, we can get you some rain somehow there. But uh, uh, I just wanted to talk about this coming up uh, Friday or the 11th, I should say, coming up uh, with the Zoom tasting. This is pretty exciting for us, uh, you know, to have, you know, one of the historic families of Napa Valley, you know, doing a Zoom tasting for our customers. Uh, we're already getting a lot of good uh, people jumping onto it. It's four bottles of wine. It's you know it's ninety four dollars for the four pack, and then it starts at six thirty, um, and and you're just going to walk us through the wines one at a time. Give us a little information, and uh, that is, and it's going to be fun. And um, I like to have some crackers and cheese when I'm doing the tasting. I know some of the people may want to you know have it at the beginning of their dinner even, uh, but. Um, I really uh, have fun with the Zoom tastings, and hopefully if people have questions, um, I can respond to the questions. Monologues can get boring. <laughs> and so if uh, you and, and, and your wonderful customers have different comments they want to make about the wine, uh, questions they want to ask about the family or the wines, I'm thrilled to respond to those questions. Well, we have a really fun and active group that does our uh, Zoom tasting there. They, we have a, a solid turnout every time, and it's a lot of the same people who really get involved, and, and, and they ask a lot of questions. I, um, I think for, for myself, and, and I think generally speaking, when, they th when people think Mondavi, they think just kick-ass Cabernet. I mean, something that's fantastic, I, but... Something that I, I kind of want to circle back to, and I think it's my fault I didn't ask the question properly. When it comes to that Chardonnay, how did that come about? Because it's named after your wife, correct? It is. When we started um, in 2004, or 2003, my wife really loves three wines. She likes Rosé of Cabernet, she likes Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. And uh, Chardonnay is her go-to wine. She likes more of the Burgundian style, not the overly oaked wine. And so I essentially said to her, okay, I'll make a Chardonnay in the style you like. And she said, no, Michael. And I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you'll make the wine the way you want. She said, I want our son Rob to make the wine because he knows my palate. <laughs> and he will make the wine I like. And so his job description on the Isabel Chardonnay is make mama happy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That's what I wanted. That's the story and, I wanted. And what he did is he went out and bought about 15 or 20 different Chardonnays from the very oaky Rombauer 
to a very crisp Chablis. And he sat down and had a series of tastings with Isabel. And then from those components made a blend from those wines to get the exact style she liked and said, okay, that the wine in this glass that we just made from four different producers is the style of wine that I will produce for you, Mom. And so that's how we really got started. That's great. It's fun to be in a family business. Uh, we are also in a family business here. You know, it's my dad, myself, my nephew. You'll get maybe some of my kids will show up now and then. Other other family members will come in when it's crazy during the holidays. Um, and, and again, you know, this is something my dad started years and years ago. He was an immigrant from Italy and, you know, started in the grocery business yeah. and then moved to the wine business. So, you know, it's 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 beautiful to have that same connection. You know, I feel like, you know, this is the American dream. We've all been lucky enough to experience it. And uh, we're looking forward to next uh, Friday, the 11th, 630. Everybody make sure uh, you get in or buy, go online and buy the four pack or you can come in and buy it also. Um Michael, I do have I, I have I have something else for you that I kind of want to dive into if if you have a few minutes. Um, sure do. We do have we have a library wine in this tasting, and uh, it's that 2011 uh, Animo, and um, yes, I think that it's it's very unique and it's very interesting in a lot of ways. Um, as a sommelier and someone in the wine industry, uh, around that time there was so much um, concern around the 2011 vintage. It was it was a vintage that was thought to be not very good. When I tasted it at that point in time, I thought that there was a little bit uh, more acid to these wines, and I thought that they would be aging out rather well. And I think we're seeing that with the Animo, but can you speak to that a little bit? Because I, I think yeah. it's a, a great bottle of wine, and I think it's important to, to point that out. Yeah, it was a it was the type of vintage I love to kid my son, Rob, and I'd say, you know, in 2011, Rob, you actually earned your money. Uh, in some of the years where there's really a great vintage, Mother Nature made the wine. All you had to do was pick the grapes. <laughs> but we had uh, some delayed bud break because of cold weather. Uh, we had unseasonable rains. Uh, we were concerned about getting uh, proper sugar-acid balance in the maturity of the grapes. And fortunately, we ended up with what we call an Indian summer. So as we got through the middle and end of October, it was just beautiful, warm, sunny days, and the grapes did mature nicely. They were a little firm right at the beginning, but after you know five or six years in the bottle, they are actually better now than um, many of the very good vintages that have wonderful balanced young. So I'm very excited. The other thing is Rob has really developed an affection for Petit Verdot. And we have just under 18% Petit Verdot in this uh, Animo Cabernet from 2011. And it just marries beautifully with that wine. Well, it's a beautiful enhancement grape. I think that uh, Petit Verdot does so much for blending, especially in uh, really nice Cabernets and Merlots. It, it does a lot for that. And I um like I said I, I love what acid does to aging wines and I think that this uh, 2011 Animo is coming around beautifully. When we tasted it, we thought that it was uh, spectacular. It's it's interesting that people uh, sometimes like to age out those wines with, you know, big 
alcohol content, but I think uh, acid is really what allows it to lay down. And, and I think people will be really surprised well, at that 2011. You're right. Acid is a natural preservative. Acid retains the freshness. Alcohol can allow the wine to become jammy and heavy. And um, I found that the higher alcohol wines, like you just said, don't age as well. They, they're not as graceful in their aging as wines that are beautifully balanced with a little touch of acidity to them when they're young. Boy, they just, they glow as they get older. The, uh, I, my last question I want to ask you too, I know you now are part of Ornelia, which we have, you know, we have all that in the store. Uh, matter of fact, I think I sold the last two bottles of baby Ornelia yesterday, and I think we had four six packs of that wow. too. But um, how did that happen? How did that like you getting over into Italy and, and coming into the Italian part of that business? Well, this is back when we were uh, at Robert Mondavi Winery in the nineties, and I knew uh, Lodovico Antonori, who owned Ornelia. And whenever I'd go over uh, to visit, I would visit with many of the different winemakers. And I was having lunch with Lodovico Antonori, and he was saying, you know, I think I might, uh, I'm getting frustrated with the business. I might sell it. And I said, what? <laughs> and uh, that little two-hour lunch turned into about a four-hour discussion. And um, we had the opportunity of acquiring Ornelia. And then with our partners, the Frescobaldis, we were 50-50 partners. Um, three years ago, the Frescobaldis and ourselves parted company. And at that time, I sold our interest in Ornelia to the Frescobaldis. So we're no longer involved, but I'm still a champion of Ornelia. It's a beautiful wine, a great estate. And the Frescobaldi family that now own it are doing just a wonderful job in uh, ensuring that the quality stays right up where it belongs. That's, uh, that's beautiful. And thank you for telling that story. Michael, thank you so much for coming on with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And it's, it's great for our listening base to hear someone uh, like you and of your caliber uh, discussing your, your wine. So I can't thank you enough. Yeah, we'll see you on Zoom next well, it's uh, Friday. A and very happy to be on with you, and I look forward to Friday the 11th. It's going to be a lot of fun uh, meeting a number of your good customers. All right. Thank you, Michael. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Thank you, guys. Stay well. You too. Bye-bye. And there you have it, another really fun episode in the books. For a wine geek like me, this was an absolute treat. We really enjoyed doing this today, and we hope that you did as well. Again, that Zoom tasting is still available on our website at edsfinewines.com. That is going to be under the wine specials area, or you can just type in Michael Mondavi Zoom tasting. You heard him. He likes questions. You get to talk to him. He's a really nice guy. We hope that you enjoyed it. Cheers.